Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the latest edition of Pod Bless Canada, the Macdonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. I'm Brian Lee Crowley, the managing director of the Macdonald Laurier Institute, and it's with great pleasure that I have here with me uh, uh, Shuvaloy Majumdar, who is uh, one of our Monk Senior Fellows here at the Institute, and uh, Shuv is uh, also the lead on uh, the foreign policy work that uh, MLI is doing, uh, and we are creating uh, a centre for uh, foreign policy issues here at the Institute called the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. And in that context of advancing Canada's interests abroad, Shuv, I thought it would be a good time for us to have a discussion about the Canada-India relationship, because in a few days, the Prime Minister will be getting on a plane to go for a week-long visit to India. That's a big commitment of Prime Ministerial time. Yes, it is. So this relationship must matter to the Prime Minister, should it? Well, that's a great question. I, I, obviously, India does matter to Canada. Uh, we have not just diaspora issues, we have over a million Indo-Canadians, uh, which is one of the highest concentration of Indian diaspora in any country in the world. Uh, but also Canada and India have transformed their relationship over the last years uh, in ways that were unimaginable 20 years ago following the uh, India-Pakistani nuclear uh, face-off. Uh, and so the Prime Minister travels to India on uh, with the wind in his back, so to say, uh, in terms of what the two countries could collaborate on together, ranging from our shared prosperity to our shared security interests. Uh, it is, as you note, a very long visit. Uh, we have to imagine how much of it will be about business and how much will be about cultural issues. Uh, but I certainly believe that uh, it is an historic opportunity uh, this is the first visit the Prime Minister has been making to India as PM. Uh, I believe he's met with Prime Minister Modi uh, on a couple of occasions uh, at various global fora, most recently at Davos. Uh, and so it'll be a real thing to watch in, in how Canada presents itself in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, uh, I think Canadians are pretty much under the impression that people all around the world like us that we're, we're popular and that uh, if uh, people hear that the Prime Minister of Canada, who's, you know, kind of a charismatic guy, has a bit of a following around the world, he's going to show up in their country, they're going to greet him positively. Is it your impression that it's an unambiguous group hug that's going to happen when Trudeau shows up? Well, I think it's a complicated relationship, Dr. Crowley. You have a uh... Of course, the prime minister has a massive global following. He is known to be personally very charismatic and uh, personable individual. Uh, but I think in the context of India, it might be a bit of a different type of reception. Uh, as you know, I was in India for the last few weeks uh, with our partners at the Observer Research Foundation uh, and looking at a whole variety of Canada-India issues. And I was stunned to note that in, in the marketplaces of India, you have this news magazine called Outlook Magazine, which is a a predominant news magazine inside the country. Uh, and on the front page of it, they had a picture of the prime minister as he prepared to visit a Sikh Gurdwara, a Sikh place of worship, uh, and um, a 10-page spread uh, articulating profound concerns that the Indians have with respect to uh, this uh, extremist movement of Khalistan inside Canada. Uh, I think that these concerns are palpable and are certainly a big part of the concerns that the Indian people and the Indian government have on a security level with respect to the Canadian government's position. 
They're also looking at a government in Ottawa that has had a predilection towards Beijing uh, with massive investment of ministerial time and trade negotiations with respect to free trade specifically. Uh, the Prime Minister, or our Prime Minister Trudeau himself has indicated his admiration for the People's Republic uh, and its model of governance. And so I think that there are some very uh, deep concerns coming from New Delhi about the outlook that Ottawa has in the Indo-Pacific, not just with respect to violent extremist movements, but also with respect to the rise of China. Well, we'll come back to China in a minute. Let's, for, for the moment, let's stick with Khalistan, the prime ministerial visit, diaspora politics in Canada. Yes. Uh, because um, Canada has a very large Indian diaspora uh, in which uh, I think it's right to say uh, Sikhs, for example, are heavily, heavily overweighted in their representation in the diaspora in Canada compared to, say, their weight in the Indian population mm -hmm. as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, and even in other countries with significant Indian diasporas, think about the United Kingdom, for example, um, this pressure from the diaspora community for this idea of Khalistan, a separate Sikh homeland within India, doesn't have the same purchase. So this is, this is kind of a Canadian issue, isn't it? Very much so. Uh, and, and even politicians in uh, the Punjab, which is where the Sikh population is concentrated in India, uh, uh, they are not speaking up for this idea of Khalistan. No, they repudiate it outright. In fact, a vast majority of Indian Sikhs repudiate the notion of Khalistan outright. Um, it, is a, it is a concept that has been conjured out of thin air to create a narrative of bereavement uh, and has found particular oxygen in Canadian society. Uh, we have had massive immigration over the last decades in Canada, uh, and with it, uh, uh, an enriching of our national fabric, particularly outside of Vancouver and, and outside of Toronto. Um, and a lot of these communities are wonderful contributors to Canadian life in all levels. Uh, and a vast majority of Indian Sikhs repudiate the idea of Khalistan. However, you have uh, young people who uh, are susceptible to the idea that because they look or dress a little differently, uh, they belong outside of so-called Canadian societal norms. Uh, and uh, like vultures, they, you have this toxic ideology of Khalistan as a response to what might be a sense of alienation. Uh, coupled with drug abuse and criminality, uh, you have a culture of Khalistani ideas in certain pockets outside of Toronto and Vancouver that are working their way into the mainstream activist Sikh community. Uh, and creating a political center of gravity upon which politicians can find uh, very useful groups to draw support from. Uh, and so because of that, you have um, uh, a bit of a, a cycle in terms of a poisonous ideology that organizes and motivates a highly small group of people very effectively, which is important in nomination contests especially, uh, that then inculcates itself through mainstream uh, bereavement narratives which we see manifest in provincial and national, national legislatures uh, condemning India for its so-called abuses of human rights, which is nothing close to the truth. Um, and a fiction that has been created around the idea of Khalistan itself as a movement that has some sort of moral cause, moral justification. Uh, add to it this intersectional ideology of the last years in which allies are found in Aboriginal community or gay and lesbian communities or other bereaved communities. 
Um, and you have the inculcation, at least manifest in two of the three major national parties at very senior levels of a sympathy towards Khalistani sentiment. Uh, this is a very slippery slope because on one side you have issues, very legitimately so, of free speech in Canada in which we are a society that treasures the values and rights of individuals to express their opinions. But on the other side, Canada has a distinct legacy of the terror that comes from this type of ideology. Prior to 9-11, uh, the Air India bombing was the largest terrorist attack in North America uh, and, uh, as you know, came uh, as a result of a few thugs that boarded a plane in Vancouver that ultimately fell uh, out, of the, out of the sky near Ireland. Uh, and so over the last decades, this movement of Khalistan has formalized in different ways. Uh, the activists are more uh, emboldened than they have ever been before. We've seen a lot of reporting inside Canada about how Sikh representation is certainly on the rise, which I think on the whole is a very good thing. Um, but what matters is how Canadian leaders treat extremist ideology and repudiate the, the use of extremist icons, whether they're key martyrs or individuals, uh, or the ideology itself. So can the Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, expect to hear from Indian authorities on his visit about their concerns about uh, the Khalistan most definitely. separatist movement within Canada? Oh, most definitely. Sure. I, I think that you've got this idea that, I mean, Khalistan is an issue, has been a preeminent issue for the Indian government with respect to Canada for many years. Um, most recently, uh, and I think this is going to be one of the key points that will come up in the bilateral discussion between the two governments. Most re recently, you've had uh, uh, Gurdwaras in Toronto uh, enlisting other Gurdwaras, other places of Sikh worship, uh, to ban uh, Indian officials from visiting the Gurdwaras, which is a ridiculous idea uh, that somehow that the Indian government has some kind of intolerance towards Sikhs or Sikh ideology or uh, the Sikh faith or the service of Sikhs uh, in, in the broader cause of Indian freedom and Indian prosperity. <clears throat> uh, these types of uh, specific activities are on the rise in Canada in which uh, between Gurdwaras and legislation and bills and movements like we've seen in Queen's Park at, and elsewhere um, are, are, are certainly problematic in the bilateral relationship between two democratic governments that share values and share interests when it comes to confronting religious extremism. Have you given any thought to what the response of the government of Canada should be, how they should deal with these concerns about the... Yes, absolutely. You know, the, the, the previous government had done excellent work um, on fleshing out uh, the shared security interests that Canadians and Indians have alike. Um, there are actors like Pakistan who inculcate and sponsor terrorist ideologies, whether on one side it's the idea of political Islam and its violent representations, uh, or on the other side with respect to India, the notion of Khalistan. And uh, there is a, a dialogue between the two governments and senior officials on how the two countries can counter terrorism together, how they can counter violent extremism together. Uh, the Canadian National Security Advisor, Daniel Jean, is in Delhi today, uh, meeting with his uh, Indian counterpart, Ajit Doval, on a national security dialogue between the two countries. And that's not just geopolitical, which is a significant part of it, but it's also dealing with this, this, this notion of violent extremism and how the two governments can work together to confront this poison. So let's leave 
Khalistan and those national security uh, considerations and move on to talk about something that you touched on very briefly earlier, which was um, the relevance of China to Canada-India relations. I think it would surprise a lot of people to learn that there might be such a dimension to Very much so. uh, the Canada-India relationship and not to uh, spend a lot of time talking about the McDonnell-Laurie Institute, but you, you mentioned the fact that MLI has uh, forged a partnership with the leading think tank in India, the Observer Research Foundation, the ORF, and that uh, the two institutions together published jointly a paper about uh, how India and Japan acting together can be the cornerstone of a new kind of international uh, um, concertation, if I can put it that way, Mm -hmm. uh, that might uh, help to push back against some of the um, ways in which China is uh, asserting itself in the international community. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the rise of China is a significant advent for Canada. The largest trading partner, as you know, and the Institute has written about for Canada has been the United States. Uh, China is soon to become the world's largest economy, if not matching the world's largest economy today, and is Canada's second largest trading partner. This, this center of gravity, uh, which is a paper that you presented in Delhi, uh, of India and Japan working in concert uh, creates a third path for Canada in this particular region. And the great wonder of our own country is how, how we are a Pacific nation with a big stake in what is the outcome, not just for the economic order of the Pacific region, but also uh, the security order of the Pacific region. Uh, in, the, in, in the Indo-Pacific region, you've seen three primary instruments for uh, international security that are emerging as a response to this rise of China and China's belligerence in places like the South China Sea, where they uh, build, where they claim sovereignty over islands that are clearly not theirs and uh, lay a claim that dates back millennia. <clears throat> um, the first is the East Asia Summit, which is affiliated with ASEAN, uh, which Canada has recently been invited to be a part of. Uh, and that is an important dialogue that involves Australia and other like minded partners in Southeast Asia. The second is this idea of BIMSTEC, which includes Bangladesh, Thailand, and others uh, in uh, the Bay of Bengal and other areas in which uh, Chinese uh, submarines and naval uh, and boats have been uh, creating all kinds of challenges to uh, the international order. Uh, And then the third is uh, this idea of the Quad, in which the United States, Australia, Japan, and India can work in concert uh, to, to bolster the rules of navigation around the waters of Asia. Uh, and so none of these have quite materialized in the kind of appropriate response to China uh, that uh, the world demands. Uh, and Canada has a unique uh, contribution to make here as we reimagine what Canadian investments could be for security in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and so you know, as we look at uh, the, the security challenges geopolitically posed by a rising and reinvigorated China determined on becoming the global power uh, in the long term, uh, then, then you look to countries like India, led by Narendra Modi, and Japan, led by Shinzo Abe, uh, two very like-minded individuals who are determined to create a check against that, that, that challenge that China is posing to the international order. These are all good things. 
Can we expect uh, the Indian Prime Minister and uh, other colleagues of his to be raising China as an issue yeah. with the Prime Minister? You know, a lot of people would be surprised. Many people, when they think about India, tend to fall into the trap of the South Asia paradigm, which is that India is a concept of Afghanistan and Sri Lanka and the Maldives and Pakistan and Bangladesh, their near neighborhood. Uh, all of that is a reasonable uh, thing to posit. However, the vast majority of Indian officials and the vast majority of Indian strategic thinkers have their eyes trained on what has been happening in China over the last decade, uh, in, over the last decades, I should say, not just the last decade. Uh, and what President Xi represents, particularly as a challenge to India in the long term. Um, Indian officials and ministers are 100 uh, percent committed to the concept of building in India that can in the long term be an appropriate rival to China, not Pakistan. Pakistan is a bit of a footnote for a lot of Indian policy leaders uh, and, and thinkers. And so I, I can certainly imagine that when New Delhi is engaging Ottawa about what Canada's role is going to be in the Indo-Pacific, uh, their chief question will be, are you allied with countries like India and Japan and Korea and Australia uh, and others who share our values through trade partnerships and security alliances? Or are you more interested in this glimmering market that is China in the short term? And third, I imagine they would posit, do you think that China is a safe long-term investment for Canada as opposed to us? We might not be necessarily uh, as orderly as the Chinese system is, because we all know that the communist system poses some efficiencies. Um, but, you know, in the long term, ours is a society of creativity, of intellectual, uh, uh, intellectual life that values the individual, the concept the individual can, can contribute to, to our, our mutual prosperity. So what you're saying is that, if I understand correctly, that the Indo-Pacific Basin presents Canada with some important choices. Very much so. Which I think maybe most Canadians don't really understand because they probably, my guess would be, they probably think, oh, China, big market, growing fast. Uh, uh, you know, we already have a significant uh, trade relationship with them. Uh, we can deepen that relationship uh, uh, sign a free trade agreement with them, whatever it might be, uh, without it affecting our ability to, say, deepen our relationship with uh, India or continue to enjoy a strong relationship with Japan and Australia. But you're, uh, you're seeming to suggest that actually there are choices to be made and that it's not, we, we maybe can't have all of it. We need to decide what's most important. Yeah, and, and, and that's exactly true, Dr. Crowley. We have to define what Canadian interests are in the region we can't have it all and there are great risks to investing in China um, where whereas the risks to investing in India are somewhat different uh, I should note uh, that the Indian government in the last two years has done some tectonically important things for their own economy they've catapulted their country from the ease of business doing uh, ease of doing business rankings from 150th position to 100th position in the last year their credit rating as a country is improved they've implemented a goods and sales tax, which is simple and actually welcomed by the small business sector of the country. They have a political majority emerging uh, in their national government and a, con and a concept of competitive federalism to try and improve the performance of states uh, at the Indian level. Um, ministers are focusing on looking at how they can revamp their air, road, rail, and port infrastructure capacity and are aggressively seeking investment to doing so. 
And although, you know, we haven't quite seen this in Canadian industry, Canadian economic life as tangibly as we prefer just yet, uh, there are some major investments that Canadian pension funds have been putting into the Indian market and the Indian economy. Uh, in the last two years, Canadian pension investment has gone from next to nothing to somewhere between 12 to $14 billion uh, looking at these massive innovation hubs and districts that are that are uh, proving to be incredibly successful models in the Indian economy. Um, and so these are early wins in a longer story that has yet to be written. Uh, but Canadian policymakers and Canadians themselves have to decide how they want to advise their government on prioritizing the opportunity that India presents for Canada, not just for the short term, but for the very long term. And so what you're suggesting is that, uh, uh, I think, uh, you'll tell me if I'm right, uh, what you're suggesting is that the choices that Canada makes about its relationship with China and the choices that it makes with its relationship with India don't just affect our relations with those two countries, but in fact affect uh, our relationships throughout the Indo-Pacific base. Very much so. Uh, this is a dynamic and fastly growing region. This is the highest growing, fastest growing region on earth. And India is currently the fastest growing economy of this region. Um, we're never quite sure about the numbers we get from China, so it's hard to say how, 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 how well they are performing, but we know it's not at the same level of growth that India is performing at now. However, India's economic development is more like China in the 1970s than it would be China in, in, contemporary, in the contemporary context. So um, there are choices that Canada and Canadian leaders need to make about how they want to prioritize their long-term alignments and um, the risks of uh, engaging with China without understanding the kind of consequences there are to its state-owned economy um, owning Canadian sectors or owning Canadian national security interests or learning the lessons of what Chinese investment has resulted in places like Australia or New Zealand, which are analogous to Canada. Um, the risks of not learning those lessons well uh, will not serve Canadian interests in the long term. So uh, are, am I right in thinking that uh, people in Tokyo, in Canberra, in Wellington, um, perhaps other places, Seoul. Dhaka, Seoul, Seoul yeah. will be watching Canada's visit to India. I think as, as Canada starts, you know, we're, engaging, we're entering a world in which um, order is more multipolar rather than you know, bipolar, as has been the byproduct of the Cold War, um, which means that as, as China rises, as other powers rise, uh, countries like Canada and what we do matter. And the decisions that Canada makes in the Indo-Pacific Basin, whether it's through joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership on commercial tracks or you know, being an active and, and positive contributor to security norms uh, and the security alliances of the region, uh, will certainly be watched by regional capitals uh, in terms of saying, you know, is Canada coming into this region as a partner for those who seek long-term prosperity on the basis of the order that we have all come to know and understand? Or is Canada more interested in uh, participating in the Chinese opportunity, the Chinese advent? Uh, and if that is the case, then, you know, um, they will treat our government and our country with either suspicion or with a warm embrace. Now, you mentioned the TPP a moment ago, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, and of course, we can't uh, think about the TPP without pointing out that uh, 
This was originally uh, an agreement that was supposed to bring together 12 governments around the Indo-Pacific Basin mm -hmm. until the election of the, um, uh, to the presidency of Donald Trump, who withdrew America from, uh, from the TPP. Does that signal uh, a, a weakening of American commitment to leadership in the Indo-Pacific Basin? It, it, it was, I think, true for uh, decades following the Second World War and uh, the Korean War that America was a reliable leader of that coalition of countries that's committed to the rule of law, free trade, <clears throat> um, uh, free navigation, etc., etc. Um, is the context such that Canada's decisions about this will be even more important because America is no longer the reliable leader? That it once was. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? It's not just Donald Trump that withdrew the United States from the TPP. It was his Democratic rival, Hillary Clinton, who also said that she would not sign on to the TPP. So uh, American unpredictability is certainly a factor governing the thinking of the leaders of this region. Uh, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Dr. Crowley, as you know, uh, was about establishing the rules for how trade would be governed in this region with the hope that there would be a strong enough center of gravity with enough participants in which even China would need to comply around the order um, that would be to the benefit of all, not just one or two. Um, and so uh, this, this trade agreement um, is one part of a longer, a larger response to what is American unpredictability. Uh, and, and in the last years, uh, Shinzo Abe of Japan has visited India numerous times. And each time the two leaders meet, between India and Japan, they have uh, delivered a host of announcements on uh, naval cooperation to infrastructure building. Um, I, I would argue that India and Japan have never had a more robust and productive relationship than they are today, or has as much ambition underpin that relationship as it has as recent times. And this is all, um, I think, in response to that bigger question you've asked Dr. Crowley about American unpredictability in a sense that, you know, who will be the countries that step up to fill this vacuum uh, that is being created by what people are imagining to be a bit of an American withdrawal. Uh, I would argue that, you know, what we're seeing in Washington with respect to the Indo-Pacific is more about um, the United States pursuing its national interests um, and expecting that, you know, those who may not have contributed to the kind of order that they have themselves benefited from need to step it up a little bit. I don't think that Washington, and, and, and it can be read into the national security strategy that Washington produced just a couple of months ago, which is a very fulsome document uh, that the president himself had attended, has, has ascribed his signature to, um, that, uh, you know, meaningful investments by willing partners in the region would be seen to be a welcome thing. I don't think Washington expects that the part of the region carry the burden entirely on their own. They see that they can work in concert with others but it should not just be America carrying the burden alone. And I think that's not a bad thing to shake up the system a little bit. And so how does Canada fit into that calculation? I mean, we're talking about the Indo-Pacific Basin as being the fastest growing region in the world with some uh, divided by some very important ideological and other uh, uh, barriers. Um, we're talking in the context here at the Institute of a center for advancing Canada's interests abroad. 
is Canada shouldering its share of the burden? And is, should, should Canadians think that there is a role for Canada to play here? Are we just too small a player to matter? No, I, I appreciate your question, Dr. Crowley. I think on one side, we have not yet quite fulfilled the potential that we have in the Pacific. Um, and, and this is an area in which we have historical claim, meaning uh, in the Korean War uh, and in the Second World War in Hong Kong. Um, we are also a country naturally endowed with peoples from all of the Indo-Pacific region countries that can act as bridges to not just these economies, but to really vibrant relations. Uh, and I'm thinking in my mind of the Filipinos, the Vietnamese. The, I mean, this is a remarkable uh, country that we belong to that gives us a, a real ticket to the Pacific party, if I could put it that way. Um, but I think there needs to be a lot more work uh, that we at the Institute and others uh, in like-minded countries need to do together to say, look, if Canada was to pull up a chair at this table, what would that involve? What, what kind of investments do we need to be able to make, not just in our diplomatic network or our trading relationships, but also uh, in our security infrastructure? They don't need to be hard investments. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not advocating by aircraft carriers and planes as a response alone. Um, I'm saying that there are things that we can do to assure um, the, the, the security interests that Canada has as part of a shared coalition of security interests of others in this region. But for that, it requires our country to step up, to dream, to imagine alongside our partners in the region, and then to start doing the things that make the long-term difference for Canada at stake in this amazing place. Well, with that challenge to uh, Canadians and uh, our federal government in Ottawa, that's perhaps a good place to uh, draw to a close this uh, edition of uh, Pod Bless Canada, the Macdonald Laurier Institute's uh, public policy podcast. I have been joined here today uh, uh, with, by um, Shuvaloy Majumdar, who is uh, Monk Senior Fellow here at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, um, leader of our new uh, Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. And we've been talking about uh, some of the issues at stake in uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's forthcoming visit to India and beyond India throughout the Indo-Pacific Basin. Thanks very much for listening to our podcast. Uh, this is Pod Bless Canada.